Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking. Brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back. Are you ready for this week? I'm ready. I'm ready for this week. So this is a body to burial first for us, but we are going to be talking to Kimberly and what makes Kimberly special. She's going to be our first two-part episode. Yes, she's just so fascinating and she does two different things that I thought instead of having her into one part, I thought we could split her into two. Today's episode, we're going to focus on, she has an amazing institute for cold case investigations that she runs at Indian River State College. And so I thought we could spend this first half talking about that because it's super interesting. And then we're going to bring her back and she's going to enlighten us on criminology and victimology for the second half okay right I couldn't decide when we you know when we talked to her which one thing I wanted to talk about so I said let's do it all okay that's exciting yeah here we go so yeah so our first half is cold case investigations and I know you really like that oh I love that I feel like something that you would do if you had any more spare time yeah I do I love cold case stuff it's my favorite so yeah that's right up my alley yeah so I think instead of just keeping everybody waiting. Let me get Kimberly and we'll jump right into it. I'm excited. I feel like this is like going to be a lot of questions sort of day. I think so. All right. Let me get her. Okay. Hey, how are you? (laughs) Good. How are you? We're great. Nikki and I were talking offline and there are so many things that I want to talk to you about. I was like, oh, we might just have to have her back for more than one (laughs) episode because you do so many things that it's super, super interesting. But I think what would be really fun and a neat place to start, and I know it really uh, sparks Nikki's interest, is to have you talk a little bit about the Institute for cold cases that you started in 2018, right? Correct. Well, I met some people professionally in the industry, I want to say back in 2017, and I decided that I wanted to follow in some of their footsteps. I didn't want to be, and I definitely am not a pure academic I like to be hands-on. Well, at my age, I couldn't go back and start at the beginning and be a law enforcement officer. So I looked for the next best thing. And that was taking my love of community service and law enforcement and opening the Institute for Cold Case Investigations. So that is something that I do with my students. It is something that we do as our capstone course 
And it's a little different than most cold case institutes in the country because we actually don't work cases simply on our own. We work cases that are only within the four counties that our college is in. And we work directly with the agency that has jurisdiction over that case. And so that agency actually co-teaches with me and brings in all of the evidence, the paperwork, the knowledge, everything. My students and I have access to absolutely everything that the law enforcement agency does. Wow, that's incredible. How were you able to secure that partnership? I think probably because I had been teaching for a decade at that point, and I am extremely friendly. I am extremely obnoxious in the sense that... (laughs) There is no such thing as a question that I will not ask because what's the worst that can happen? They roll their eyes and they tell me no. So I had mentioned it and made a bunch of phone calls and a lot of agencies didn't return my phone call. And then I had one that I knew would be extremely interested just because the way that agency likes to run, they like to be very out in the public eye. So I kind of appealed to that. And they jumped on board within a heartbeat. And then after that, people have been beating down my door to get involved with us once they realize the publicity and the things that were going to come behind it and the support. Yeah, they've all been driving me crazy. I could imagine. So tell us a little bit about how do you go about selecting cases that you and your students are going to work on? The way we select cases, we are actually working with my second main agency at this point in time, that agency has chosen all of the cases for us. I have a very good relationship with them and actually their undersheriff, the chief, he is an adjunct as well at my college. So we have a personal relationship. So he knows I'm a little crazy. He knows that I want the students to get as much out of their experience with him to connect as many dots as possible that I have given them through our educational program. So he knows what I like, and he has chosen cases first that have the potential to be the most solvable type of case, that the kids aren't going to be stuck going down a path that we absolutely know is going to go nowhere, but that are extremely important that the family is still calling and asking for assistance. So that's where the community service comes back in. We want to try and do whatever we can to help the agency, but also we want to try and make our community and the victim's family whole again, if at all possible. How did they, and I don't know if you can answer this, what is their criteria for them to select a case? Because I know you mentioned it if it is more solvable. solvable. Yeah. So how do they determine that? Well, they actually look at the cases and the agency I'm working with now, we have had such success with them on both of our parts. We actually closed a case with them last year and they are looking at things that they think that can be cleared because the parties may still be calling. People may have called and said they want to talk now. The technology has changed and we actually have evidence or they have files that seem to be a little more complete and they're not missing everything. 
So there have been hurricanes and things like that. So sometimes evidence is not as available as it was back when the case originally happened. Are these cases, are they local to where you are or are they sometimes out of state or do they have to be in the jurisdiction in which the police department or sheriff work in? I started this as a grant program. I actually applied for a very tiny grant. And one of the things that I wrote in there was that we would only take cases and work with agencies that are in the college's four-county area. So these cases are literally in our backyard, which is why we do not talk about a specific case. I'm very careful when the media comes in that I don't mention a time frame or an actual city or anything because I don't want the potential suspects to run. I don't want somebody to destroy evidence. I want to draw no attention to what we're doing at the time because some of these things that we're opening may be only seven years old. So the people, they're going to still be pretty antsy. So we really are doing things that are directly in our backyard. How old are these cold cases? Uh, Let's see. I think the oldest one that we have actually looked at has been 1972, I believe. And then we've worked some that are as current as maybe five years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Like the one from 1972, what new evidence pops up? Just someone finally came forward? We actually look at some of the older ones because 1972, there wasn't DNA testing. There wasn't the genetic genealogy going on. So much has changed. I mean, just the fact that the internet makes everything so much more accessible that we can do a lot of work on the internet instead of one detective trying to run to the courthouse, to the property appraisers, to all the different agencies to try and gather information. So just electronics itself has made such a change when you're talking 50 years. The case will be done by the time they're done with your class or some are done with your class and you guys haven't solved the cold case yet? What happens is the case is worked until the case can no longer be worked. So each student, they're only able to take this class at this point in time in their very last semester because I want them and our criminal justice department wants them to have as much of their degree completed as possible. So they'll work on it for four months or so And then what I've done is make their final exam, because it is a course, their final exam is to build a binder of evidence reports, the whole case, and then another section, they will put in what they've done, what they've excluded, what they think suggestions for law enforcement. And then what happens is the next semester, those students don't have to start from scratch, I will bring in maybe one of the group leaders on each case and they will debrief the new students and that way they can just quickly go through the past documents and then pick up where the other guys left off and we can continue to move forward. We have several cases right now that are probably sitting on my shelf, I want to say probably for almost two years because I am waiting for evidence to be tested and the reports to come back from the FBI lab. Does that take a really long time? Yeah. I think it took us six months before we even got an acknowledgement of 
evidence received. So I would assume, and then in speaking to my law enforcement officers, that so much is being sent to the FBI that is current on a daily basis, that it really is what's current is what's being tested and gone through right now because time is of the essence. And then as they can get to the other stuff, we actually then are going back and testing and trying to clear the older things. If you guys weren't working on this, who would be? Well, that's what's interesting is that some of the agencies, technically, they don't have a cold case unit or anyone that is assigned strictly to cold cases. So they would only be looked at when detectives, I'm going to say this, they never have a free moment, but when they are a little more free, they will go and they will grab a case and go through it and review it. So the agency I'm working with now actually has opened up their own department. So they have a cold case unit now that is run by volunteers that are within the criminal justice system, but maybe they've retired, but they're not really ready to just sit at home and do nothing. So if it weren't for us, I don't know. They may not have ever opened up a unit, uh, but we definitely are making waves that there are other sources that can assist law enforcement and trying to close some of these old cases. Yeah, that's fantastic, especially for families too. Yeah, that's probably my biggest thing. Actually, we are working on something in the way we're calling it crowdsourcing. We've listed the file on Web Sleuths on the website, and we are actually working that case on our own. The only reason we are even doing that is because the family and or friends of the victim have called, written, emailed, or whatever every year on the anniversary for the last couple of years. And I am a huge victim's advocate. And like I said, I have taught our students that community services, it's really probably one of the most important things that they should do, learn, and actually enjoy. So we finally decided that we would take on this case, even though I didn't really want to do it on my own. But it, it is all about the family. And I couldn't I couldn't take one more phone call and turn them down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's hard for the family because you just want one person to say yes, just yes. finally, you know? Yes. So, oh. and it's not that that case is not being looked at or worked by law enforcement. They look at it every once in a while, but they don't have anything new on it. So we're hoping that maybe because we're doing it in a little more informal way, that somebody will come forward because there's, I mean, there's got to be an angry ex-girlfriend somewhere. How do you manage the family's expectations? Because when you're talking about the family's calling every year on the anniversary, I feel like if I was calling on behalf of a family member and you agreed to take the case, I would be like, oh yes, okay, now we're going to get some answers. We're going to see some results. And obviously the timeline is still extremely slow it's months and months and months before they even acknowledge that they receive your evidence for processing. So how do you still reassure the families and kind of stop them from calling you every week and asking for an update? Sure. Uh, well, first off, the cases that we work through the Cold Case Institute, we do not deal with the family, the suspect, anybody directly. We actually stand behind, so to speak, 
the law enforcement, because they, they actually are running the show. We may be working it and doing it hand in hand, but they do everything that comes to the legal section. I see. Okay. Those people we don't have to deal with, but the people that I do get, my email gets flooded and I got the best one the other day. The guy said he was a witness to the Jimmy Hoffa murder. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm like, really? I'm pretty sure you weren't, but okay. So it gives me this big, huge spiel. So I get a lot of things like that. You just got to weed through them and see what's real and not. And then I have a partner in crime and we vet the people to see how legitimate it is and most of the cases I don't touch, especially if they're out of jurisdiction. So what I do to help the family is find somebody in that, like I'm not in Seattle, but I will call and find somebody in Seattle that is qualified and willing to take that case. So I never leave anybody hanging. I just can't always be the one to pick up the ball and run. Okay, so I guess this might be a dumb question, but how does a case technically become a cold case? Because like you said, some police departments don't have the bandwidth or the department to work a case. So let's say my son goes missing. At what point do they kind of decide, okay, we're not going to actively work this. We're just going to set it aside and it's going to sit here. Is that what defines a cold case? How does it become technically a cold case and how does it get to a point where it can be opened up for you to work it? Okay. Uh, Very simple. To earn the title of cold case, there are only three types of crimes that don't have a statute that will be left cold or open, so to speak, forever. That's a missing person, sexual assaults, and murders. So only those three cases can be looked at again for any type of prosecution or justice in the long term. What will actually make law enforcement take a case from being actively worked to not being worked as often or being given that label as cold is usually when the leads dry up and they don't have any place to go. They're just completely lost. So there's no evidence. Nobody's talking. There's no cooperation. It's just like when you don't know where to go anymore, you put it aside and then you come back at it later and hope that you either see something you didn't see the first time or technology has changed. Otherwise, you wait for somebody insane and crazy like me that's going to bring in a bunch of students who are going to have crazy ideas and sometimes they work. Okay, this is a clarifying question. So that time period, could that be like six months or eight months before they realize, oh, we have nowhere to look? Or do they normally keep it open and active and on their desks for at least six months before they pull off the resources? Uh, I'll tell you this. There is no specific time frame. There are cases that could technically be labeled cold after a week. If there is nothing to do, nowhere to go, then it's not going to immediately go off their desk. But you got to remember that other crimes and things are happening at the same time. So if you don't have the time to just start picking up every stone that there is, then you're going to move over to the new case and try and keep it from going in that direction and praying that you can solve it. And then the other one has to wait. 
And then hopefully you can get back to it quickly. If nothing new comes up, then it's going to stay cold. But there is no time frame. It could be days, weeks, months. It just depends. And how difficult is it to get people that worked the case originally to talk to you guys? Do they ever feel threatened or defensive that you guys are looking into it? Kind of like, I already looked in those places and you're not going to find anything. Or do you kind of have the opposite where they're really eager that you're looking at it. I want to say that it's kind of like a marriage. I interview the agency to make sure that they are going to be willing to work with younger people who have different talent. I mean, these kids were born with a computer for Pete's sake. You know, if we have Facebook, they're off onto something else. So I have to check and make sure that whatever agency and detectives I get are not going to be so wrapped up in the past that they're not willing to walk down these new avenues of technology. And in the same turn, they have to interview us to make sure that we don't have harebrained ideas that, uh, yes, the students are all constantly on social media posting this and that there's a level they have to make sure that they trust us in the process that we're not going to put something out there that's going to put the case in jeopardy. So it really is a double interview process. So how do your students know? I guess you can't even really answer that directly because the starting point is always going to be different with each case. Actually, I'll tell you what I do. The starting point is always the same. And in this, you can say I'm either brilliant or I'm evil. (laughs) It just depends. But my partner that does all of my outside professional stuff with me, his name is Pierre. He suggested that we do not give the students the case file when they start because Law enforcement doesn't show up on the scene and handed a file. They have a dead body laying in front of them. And then they're like, okay, go solve it. So each semester, we do it a little different. Uh, The first semester, we were really nice. And we gave them a single news article. And that news article had the victim's name, the date, the time, and what was found. You know, whether it was a house fire or a person that was in a car, whatever. And then I look at them and I say, okay, what would you do first? And then they go off in a thousand directions. Last semester, I wasn't even that nice. I gave them a name and I said, the crime happened in Florida. Have at it. And they just start searching and seeing what they find. Yeah. And that was a little unfair because at least law enforcement knows who, what, when, and where. But I'm trying to build their skills in thinking outside the box So I was very surprised this semester when I did that to them, how much they found the very first day. It was absolutely crazy, but I was never more proud of students in my life because they didn't even try and solve anything. They just gathered and it was brilliant. How many students do you have in your class that are working on these cases? So each class will only have 15 in it. And depending on the type of case or if the case has a lot of witnesses, suspects, all kinds of things, we may all work on that one case and divvy it up into sections just as the detectives would do. If the cases are smaller or you're really going to have to dig to find things, 
I usually work two cases at a time, but I have at one point worked three. So that one happened because the last case the kids solved, they solved in six weeks, which was phenomenal. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and it was their, um, their computer skills that, that found a piece of evidence that had kind of just gotten lost in the system. When you guys are working on a case, do you just hit the ground running? Nope. The day class starts is the day I give all the rules, uh, the legal consequences for not following the rules. I mean, if they were to post something on Facebook about the case, well, there are consequences at the college for both them and me. But aside from that, I loved it when the sheriff said, we don't care if you get kicked out of school. I'll just arrest you. You're hindering an investigation. (laughs) And all of our eyes got really big. So we go through the rules and then the detective will turn around and say, okay, we're going to work on this case. I will have everything ahead of time, but I don't give the students anything. So he'll ask me, what do you want to give them? And I'll either say, go ahead and brief them or nope, we're not giving them anything. We try and keep it different just because every crime that an officer goes to is different. So I don't want them to think in the way of a pattern. I don't want them to get used to anything. What are their limitations? Uh, Because obviously they're not police officers. I'm assuming if they find someone and they're like, hey, we want to talk to this person, we feel like they might have seen something or know this person. Does everything have to come back to you first or are they allowed to reach out? Where do they have to stop? Yeah, they are not allowed to make any contact with anybody, period. I don't want them going, and nor does the agency want them going. I don't care if it was a bar fight. I don't care if it was a murder in a house. No, they're not going unless they have permission from the agency or they're going with the agency. We have given many suggestions of people that either need to be re-interviewed or interviewed for the first time. Are they allowed to sit in on those interviews or no? I've had them both ways. It depends on the detective that's in charge of that particular case. They will either allow us to sit in the room behind the window with other law enforcement officers. That way we can look at body language, micro expressions, all of that stuff. Uh, We are able to communicate back and forth if we can at the time and say, hey, This doesn't match what they said before. And then the officer can push that angle or, you know, like the person we have asked to be re-interviewed this time is in prison and there's no way. I'm not sure even the college would let them go that far, but normally it's just the law enforcement officer that goes if it's in a facility of any kind, mental health, prison, something like that. We do have somebody that is out of state that we have a case that we can close at any time once we're able to get to interview that gentleman. If he just tells my officer one good lie, we have him. And that's a huge, that's a huge case. So uh, we're hoping that happens soon. Do you ever have students, because I know they have to take this at the end of their education. Do they ever just beg you to please let them continue working the case after they've graduated just because they've spent this time and they want to see it through? Well, um, yes. The case that I just talked about that we have everything we need except a confession or a really good lie out of this one particular individual That was a summer semester, and I normally don't do this class over the summer because the semesters are so short, 
but I had four girls and they were so highly motivated. We decided to do it. They graduated and they did not leave. I'm like, guys, you've got your degrees. You're good. <laughs> They're like, nope. We are meeting. They came every week for the three hours. They did some stuff outside. They built everything that they needed to give the officer so that he could go to the state attorney and it's ready to go as soon as that guy tells a lie. They weren't even students anymore. They just refused to leave. And I do have one now that had graduated before I started the Institute and she's coming back and she's been with me now two semesters. And so she's kind of like a volunteer so to speak. But yeah, no, everybody's scrambling to get in. I have people from other, you know, they're biology majors, they want in. We're evaluating how we can maybe make this bigger, but still keep it under control. For me, that's the most important part. And I guess my next question is because just a little context here, we have Mm -hmm. a lot of middle schoolers that listen to our podcast. And (laughs) I know if I was in middle school and I was listening about this program, I would be like, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm interested in. I'm a research fiend. What kind of students are you getting? What are they getting degrees in? What is their occupation goal? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, That's where we have realized that people in other, like I teach in the criminal justice program, but I do have students that are going into the law enforcement academy. I have ones that are gonna stay and they're gonna go into graduate school. They're gonna go into law school. I have some that when they're done with me and will then go on into science programs because they've decided they wanna work in forensics. So I have people all across the spectrum. Actually, when you think about it, I'm looking at something in the past. So archeologists, psychologists, sociologists, all those people really can participate. So. For me, this was uncharted territory. In 2018, I had to learn how to think and act like a law enforcement officer, and they had to think like a teacher. Now I'm trying to think like, I guess I'm going to say an administrator, and how I can bring somebody in that's been in another department and I haven't built that trust with, and make sure that they realize how big of a deal this is. But really, there's so many things that go into it that middle schoolers, they could focus on math, science, computers, criminal justice, law, any of those will work because they all have value in solving a case. What does the math part have to do with solving the case? Well, you've heard that if you've watched enough TV shows and you know (laughs) if it's on TV, it's true. Yeah. (laughs) But one of the biggest things, and it really does, the case we're working right now, it comes back to the money. (laughs) Oh, there might be accounting involved in it. It also plays a role in looking at, I don't want to be too graphic, but where the body of your victim is and being able to determine the physics and things like that of where your suspects could have been standing or where they were when the act was committed. That's interesting. Criminal justice, or I should say, we call it criminology, which is a study of crime really isn't its own thing. It steals a piece of every other kind of education to put together. You know, you need the medical community because there might be something medically wrong with the person and that's why they passed or your suspect might have a medical issue like a tumor that caused them to do what they did. And once that's removed, they're not that evil, nasty person. You've got psychology, you've got mental health. I mean, 
criminology is a field that can can take anybody. And I am one of those people that I didn't get my degrees in a straight line, meaning criminal justice, criminal justice, criminal justice. And I'm still building on my education. Like right now, I'm doing forensic linguistics because for me, words say a lot. There's a big difference between being, and I'll, I'll make it rated PG here, to say I'm upset with you versus I am extremely angry. You've said the same thing, but it doesn't mean the same thing. A lot of times you can catch people in lies or just nerves or whatever based on the way they speak. It's interesting. We talked to a linguist and it was crazy where he can see something as simple as one word in a piece of paper. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's wild. They're repetitive with that one word. And it is, to me, it was completely fascinating. And then I did meet a very famous FBI linguist and, you know, he was partially responsible for catching the Unabomber. That was our guest. Ah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, it's like, I can't wait because he's about to be my teacher and he's probably going to want to kill me because I do nothing but ask. I'm like, why? 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 (laughs) He's fantastic. You're going to love him and he will love all your questions. He's going to be like, okay, you've monopolized me enough. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I know him and all of his team that work together. They've been very good, especially one of the other agents that is also retired He actually will Zoom with my students. He will let them interview him for projects. He will respond on our Facebook for the Cold Case Institute. He will respond to a student. So that's why when you said I do so much, that's why I do so much so I can meet those people so I can bring it back and be the coolest teacher possible to give them the best education. That's fantastic. Okay, so that was a lot for our cold case investigation crash course. Can I tell you, I just want to go enroll at Indian River State College and take her class. Right? Gonna sign up today. It's fascinating. All of these people that we've talked to that do classes, I'm like, can I do one? Can I go there? Can I fly there? Uh It's just so fascinating. It's amazing. So, so cool. All of it is just so interesting to me. I love the cold case stuff. You know, I love all that. So that was really, really neat that these students and they get nothing. Like she gives them nothing to go off of. And then they have to try to solve. It's like a movie. Yeah, it is. It's the best. No, I really liked it. And she's just, she's like, I would love to have her as a teacher. Oh yeah. Doesn't she seem like she would just be the best. She's fantastic and exciting because we get to talk to her again. I know. So yeah. So I guess not much to wrap up with Kimberly because she'll be back next week. So same time as every week, guys, we'll see you back to uh, have Kimberly educate us on criminology and victimology. I'm excited. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.